I'm Hannah Garland, mom, wife, formerly overwhelmed human being, and I believe in living an uncommon life. In my uncommon life, I know I'm not meant to be a perfect person, but I am meant to be a peaceful one, free from anxiety and unrest. In pursuit of this purpose, I live intentionally, making choices to take care of myself, simplify all facets of my life, be vulnerable, and trust in God. Do you feel like it takes every ounce of your energy just to barely get through each day? Too often people, especially wives and moms, feel chronically anxious and unwell because they don't devote time to understanding what would truly bring them peace and joy. Meanwhile, they go through the motions and miss out on what matters most. I want to invite you to stop surviving and start thriving. Learning to thrive can be a simple notion. Sometimes it does look like just getting through the day, but with a little more peace and fulfillment. Ultimately, your uncommon life will look different than anyone else's. My goal is to empower you with the knowledge and confidence to make choices for yourself that are against the grain and might not always make sense, but are beneficial for your mind, body, and soul. This is your uncommon life. Start living it. Hello, everyone. You may not know this, but I also have a Facebook group that I'm hoping to turn into a community for listeners of the show. It's called Your Uncommon Life Community. Anyone can request to join it. Last week, I polled the group and asked what tends to overwhelm people the most, and the number one response was your own mind and your own anxiety. Above everything else that's going on in the world and in our personal lives, the main thing that drags us down is how we get into our own heads. This was actually an honest and refreshing thing to hear. We don't need to blame external circumstances all the time. Sometimes we are our own worst problem. It's okay to acknowledge that. That's the first step toward making positive change. That's why I'm talking about taming overthinking this week. You know that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you don't know if you're making the right choice? That's overthinking. Or that frustration you get when things don't go exactly as you expected, even though you thought so hard about your decision. That's a control issue related to overthinking. Stack enough of those moments together and you can become pretty overwhelmed and anxious. I'm not a therapist and I can't help you eradicate anxiety, but I can help you identify and reduce the triggers that I've become quite familiar with over the years and replace them with good habits. That's where we'll focus today. I'm going to talk about having a bias for action and show you how at least 50% of the decisions you labor over every day can be simplified. Along the way, we're going to learn how to stop being afraid to fail and instead look at failure as a fact-finding mission. Overthinking, analysis paralysis, indecision, or whatever you want to call it can be crippling. No one wants to overthink or let indecision get the best of them, but we do it anyway. Why is this? When we fear an unfavorable outcome, we try to control it by combing through all the details of the decision, all of the data, all of the possible outcomes, and after a great deal of time, we might make a decision. Sometimes, we give up and make no decision at all. In the meantime, we've driven ourselves and our loved ones mad with our anxiety-ridden indecision. What's the point? What problem are we really solving if we make a good choice, but along the way, we hurt ourselves and others? This pattern of overthinking is rooted in perfectionism, a need to control, and a fear of failure. Fears like these often involve shifting too much power to something that shouldn't be in a position of power. I'll explain. Last week, we discussed fear of rejection and how it gives power to the other person. You're giving the other person power over who you get to be as you edit your personality to adapt to their expectation of you. 
With fear of failure or fear of an unfavorable outcome, you are actually giving yourself too much power. You're believing the lie that you're in control of the outcomes. That's why overthinking causes so much anxiety as you are regularly greeted with the frustrating truth that things happen that are outside of your control. I would love to say that all you have to do is just be more confident and trust in yourself, but I think that's a lie and that it puts too much pressure on you. I personally believe only God knows what the outcome will be and is in control of it. Now, we are still responsible and need to make good decisions with the information we have, but often we let perfect become the enemy of good as we pursue some ideal outcome. When we try to manage the outcome and fear failure, we usurp God's authority. Our fear indicates that we don't trust that he's in control. Even if you don't believe in God, surely you can admit that trying to control outcomes is often futile. Don't you think that if you were really in control of every outcome, your life would look different? Think of all the things, large and small, that you overthink on a daily basis. Decisions you've poured over in the past that end up not mattering at all. Like what people will think of you when you put yourself out there. A parenting decision like whether to school online. A decision at work like how to run a meeting. Even smaller things like what to buy at the store or how to organize your kitchen. Every time you let yourself overthink a decision, you reinforce this behavior and slowly turn it into a habit you don't want. It will become an automatic pathway for you that will set you up for even more anxiety. As you let overthinking and analysis paralysis take over, you give it more and more power over you and allow yourself to get bogged down by uncertainty regularly. I have a long history with overthinking to the point of anxiety and panic attacks. In episode two titled, Who Do You Think You Are?, I detailed all of my work mistakes I've made on my path toward discerning my identity. I stayed in work situations that were bad for me way too long. Often, I stayed because I valued money more than my own well-being. But even when I knew I needed to leave, I usually labored over the decision to quit. After my miscarriage, I tried to act on my gut instinct and quit without overthinking the decision, but my boss convinced me to stay anyway. So I stayed four more months before finally quitting. I should have just stuck with my gut. When I went on maternity leave earlier this year, I thought I would never go back to work after. I knew I would be a stay-at-home mom. But as maternity leave neared its end, I started questioning that decision. After all, it was during quarantine and I could work from home. Maybe that would work. I mean, how could I make this decision if I'd never experienced being a working parent? I started questioning all of my plans. Then it got even more complicated. A friend at a different company was hiring for a pretty senior role and he reached out to me. Suddenly, I was updating my resume and doing interviews. It was looking pretty promising that I could get the new role. It would pay more than twice as much as my old job, so it made sense on paper why I'd want to take it. Meanwhile, I hadn't quit my old job yet and I wasn't sure what I would do. So when my baby was four months old, I not only decided to go back to work, but I also decided to pursue other jobs too. It was so stressful and completely contrary to my original plans. I remember I was supposed to restart my old job on Monday and do the final interview for the new job on that Thursday. It would be a day full of interviews. I never even asked for that Thursday off or made a plan for childcare. I was paralyzed moving toward a week that would be impossible to manage, and I did not know what to do, so I did nothing. As that fateful week approached, I had a constant knot in my stomach. This was not helping me be a more peaceful person. Something had to give. 
Sometimes I have to experience a little pain to make a good decision. After the second day of work at my old job, I finally decided to cancel the interview for the new job. I could barely handle the job I already knew how to do while watching a baby, so I certainly couldn't imagine trying to ramp up to an even more challenging role. And though the job would pay enough for full-time childcare, I wasn't interested in that option. I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. What's hard is that, from the beginning, I knew deep inside that I shouldn't have ever pursued that role. I knew it wouldn't be good for me, that it would be very stressful, and that I might not be able to be as present of a mom as I wanted to be. And yet I pursued it because I didn't know how to make the call, and the money was very alluring. I gave myself weeks of stress poring over this decision, prepping for interviews, and doing my resume. Weeks that I could have devoted to enjoying maternity leave with my son. Have you ever wrestled with a decision when, in hindsight, you realize that your initial gut instinct was right all along? Very rarely are we surprised by what the best decision is in the end. We just wrestle with our own fear for too long until we finally make the right choice. So, we all know we aren't in control of all possible outcomes from our decisions, right? But cognitive awareness doesn't always incite action. Just because you know you shouldn't overthink and aren't in control doesn't mean it's easy to just stop. It's a deeply ingrained, bad intellectual habit that you've cultivated and fed over time. And now you need to starve it. Like any bad habit, you have to take measured steps to beat it and replace it with another habit. This is an extreme example, but consider the bad habit of smoking. You know it's bad for you, but it's hard to quit. There's a gap between knowledge and action that has to be filled with something, like nicotine patches, gum, or therapy. So today we're going to focus on how you can build more effective and helpful intellectual habits to combat overthinking and analysis paralysis. I said in an earlier podcast that I would talk about lessons I learned from the corporate life because, whether I like it or not, there are things that I learned from my high-stress jobs that have affected every facet of my life. This will likely turn into a series and maybe I'll call it adulting like a boss or something fun. Today's corporate lesson is in having a bias for action. What is a bias for action? It is the propensity to make decisions, especially when the path forward is uncertain for the sake of making progress. Employing a bias for action is about accepting risk. You use the data you have at your disposal, even if it's incomplete, accept the risk of a possible incorrect choice, and just make a decision instead of laboring over it. Even if you aren't positive which choice is the right one, you have to find a way to move forward. You can't stay stalled and do nothing. Analysis paralysis is death for a project and is possibly literal death in a military scenario, so many companies and organizations champion having a bias for action. You may think that there is an increased likelihood of failure if you take action without having all of the facts. And that is sometimes true. Your decision might land in failure, but failure is one of the ways that we learn and grow. Don't think of it as failure. Think of it as fact-finding. Sometimes any decision is better than no decision at all because it will help you gather more information to determine a better decision next time. In the absence of a clear path forward, you can make any decision to rule out a bad option or understand more about your criteria. Regardless of your choice, you will always learn more than you knew before and likely feel more confident in your next choice. I honed this skill throughout my 10 years in very chaotic work environments. I was often developing programs that had never existed before and quite literally creating something out of nothing. So I had to learn to make decisions that had a long-lasting impact in the absence of clear data. 
We often use the term that we were building the plane as it was flying. So you make choices and the plane takes off. You make more choices, maybe the plane loses altitude. You quickly refuel while in flight and patch the plane and get it up to 35,000 feet again. Hopefully, by the time you reach your destination, you're done building the plane and it works. This was every day at work for me, and honestly, this is a lot like life. You have to change plans mid-course and reset when you realize something just isn't working. Accept failure as part of a necessary learning and fact-finding process. Whether it's in your marriage or romantic relationships, dealing with family, paying bills, dealing with doctor's appointments and insurance, or just shopping and daily tasks, we have so much random stuff we do and have to decide every day, and it can't all be perfect. So streamline the burden you're putting on your brain and learn how to be more decisive and action-oriented. Easier said than done, right? I wish it were as simple as, make a good choice, but quickly. I know for me, I get stalled at all kinds of choices. So I designed a quadrant of decision-making several years ago. I designed it for work situations, but I only very recently realized that it applies in my personal life too. You can go to my podcast transcript on my website to see a picture of the quadrant I drew up. It will help explain what I mean. It's on youruncommonlife.com. Click on the read tab and go to podcast transcripts to find this episode. I'll try to explain here what I mean too. My decision quadrant has two axes. One axis is reversibility. There are reversible and irreversible actions. The other axis is impact. And there are low impact and high impact actions. Each of these axes are spectrums. On one end, you have highly reversible, low-impact decisions like most purchases or home decor choices. You can undo these decisions with minimal effect on your life. And on the other, you have high-impact, irreversible decisions like buying a home or getting major surgery. So anytime you are considering a decision with multiple options where the path forward is not clear, you assess the options you have according to reversibility and impact. When you narrow down your options to these two criteria, it will quickly become apparent that at least 50% of your possible options are no-brainers that you can exhaust first while on your fact-finding mission. In the absence of a clear path forward, highly reversible, low-impact decisions are your sweet spot. Use them for fact-finding and option elimination. For example, if you're shopping for something. For most things, you can return stuff you don't like to the store or cancel your service. The ramifications might be measurable, but small. In these cases, sometimes making fast decisions is actually the best way to gather data efficiently and move forward. Don't spend two hours doing research if you still won't feel 100% confident in your choice. You'll never get that time back. Practice making decisions in this easy sweet spot to train your decision-making muscle. Once you firmly establish good decision-making habits here, you'll feel equipped to tackle the bigger, hairier decisions with less anxiety. It's like preparing for a fight. In order to feel confident going into the ring, you need to spar a lot. These are like mini-fights that prep you for the big moment. Consider the reversible, low-impact decisions like that. They're like training for something bigger. Do them enough, and the big moment won't feel so daunting. A really good low-risk area to practice making fast and final decisions is in purging items from your house. We all feel lighter when we get rid of stuff anyway. Start in a low-value, low-sentimentality part of your home like the bathroom or the laundry room. Give yourself a short period of time like 30 minutes. In that short period of time, you're going to quickly get rid of stuff. 
You're throwing away everything that is old, doesn't get used, or is an unnecessary duplicate. That's old makeup, bottles, and tubes that are almost used up but still sitting around, all of the face lotions and hand lotions you never use, old prescription medications, old and gross soaps and detergents, etc. Just have a bag and throw those things away. Don't belabor any decisions. If you're considering whether or not to get rid of something, give yourself 15 seconds. If it's something that you can replace within 20 minutes for less than $20 and you're not even sure if you need it, the answer is you don't. And if it turns out that you really do need it, well, it's really easy to get back, isn't it? So get rid of it. I bet after doing that, you'll feel super motivated to tackle something else, maybe a closet or a junk drawer. When you push yourself to make fast decisions regularly, you prime your brain to make fast decisions in other areas too. This is actually how I started this podcast. I was on a minimalism mission around my house, getting rid of anything I didn't need, and suddenly I felt motivated to finally start a podcast and a blog, which is something I'd wanted to do for years but was too scared to do. It felt like a high-impact, irreversible decision, so I had avoided it for a long time. Well, six weeks later, here we are. How did I overcome my fear and indecision? After making some empowering decisions to get rid of stuff around the house, I started to look at the decision to start a podcast as a series of small, low-impact, and reversible decisions. And it really was. One day, I write a blog. The next, I subscribe to a podcast host. The next, I pick a website template. Then I find a microphone, and so on, until six weeks later when I publish the cumulative effort. By breaking down big decisions into small, manageable, bite-sized decisions, everything seemed more possible. Which brings me to my next tip. Often seemingly irreversible and high-impact decisions are actually a series of lower-impact decisions in disguise. The next time you're faced with something huge, something that feels overwhelming, break it down into 30 smaller things and start with the smallest thing first. You might be surprised how many big things in your life can be made possible when you break them down this way. Need to reorganize your entire house? Start with a drawer. Need to restart your entire career? Start by registering for one class online. How do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. These smaller decisions will help you gain momentum and confidence as you progress toward larger things. I'm still learning how to make fast decisions in my personal life, though. A few days ago, I went to Target to buy Christmas decor. Target is like a magical fairyland of cross-merchandising that makes you want to buy everything you don't need and nothing you do need all at once. And sometimes when I shop there, I get too overwhelmed and indecisive and leave with nothing. This time, while perusing the Christmas stockings, the same familiar tightness started to build in my chest. I made what should have been a tiny decision feel high impact when it wasn't at all. I started asking myself, which stockings would look best in my house? Would my husband like them? Should I get extras that match for any future kids I may bear just in case they don't sell these styles again in the future? But they're $15 and it's wasteful to buy six stockings if I'll never need them again. That's $90, but maybe I can use them for my cats. But the stocking holders for the mantle only hold four stockings and I don't want to buy more than four right now. And on and on. The urge to flee the store with nothing in hand started to rise within me. But lately I've been trying to become more aware of that feeling of anxiety and overwhelm and shut it down. So I remembered what I had learned about reversible and low impact actions and told myself I was free to make any decision and the outcome wouldn't really matter. Because it doesn't. Why? Because this is a highly reversible decision. 
I can return all of the things, and it's also definitely low impact. If I have more than four family members in the future, it is relatively easy to just get different stockings at the time. I don't need to burden myself with planning for a future family I don't even have. I hope that the next time you find yourself fretting about something small, you remember this. If it's reversible or low impact, just make any decision now. Any decision is better than none. Don't waste a single minute on it. Your time is too precious and you'll never get it back. Once you're up against an irreversible action that is low impact, then it still doesn't matter what route you choose. Neither option will carry materially different consequences for your life. Or the difference isn't anything you'd notice or miss or be bothered by. For example, if you're getting a flu shot or routine medical procedure, it likely doesn't matter what doctor you go to. True, it's irreversible, but the outcomes won't make enough of a difference for you in the long run. Another use case for bias for action is something where maybe it would have a higher impact, but you honestly don't have enough information to know what that impact would be and you have to make a choice right away. At work, I often had to choose between managing two different projects and I had very little time to mull it over. Sometimes I had very little information to go off of. I had never worked with a client before or that organization before and would basically be heading in blind. So worrying about the decision wouldn't give me any more useful information than I already had. You can't carry the burden of predicting the future. For decisions like these, though they may be irreversible and high impact, you still might as well flip a coin as far as I'm concerned. Just because the ramifications of something are huge doesn't mean that you overthinking it will affect the outcome at all. All you do is waste more time and energy and reinforce the bad habit that you don't want in your life. In all of the above examples, all highly reversible and or low impact choices or choices where you don't have enough information, you can take fast action with the information you have on hand. When you do this, you free up your mind to focus on the decisions that really do require your time and focus. More importantly, you start to exercise your decision-making muscle so that when you are up against something big and hairy, you know what to do. This was my first lesson in my To Be Named series on lessons from a corporate life. If you walk away with only a little of what we talked about today, I hope you walk away with this. One, you are free to fail. Failure is the way we learn and grow. It's fact-finding. Two, overthinking, which is a form of fear of failure, is holding you back from opportunities for growth. Three, reversible, low-impact decisions are your sweet spot. And if anything seems too big or too overwhelming to take on, I bet you can narrow it down to a series of small, reversible, low-impact decisions that you can take down one by one. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you like the podcast, the best way you can help out is to subscribe and leave a review. You can visit my website, youruncommonlife.com, to read blogs, find podcast transcripts, and more. Please join my Facebook group, Your Uncommon Life, to join a community of supportive people. Have a great day.